0: I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. These words were reserved only for Jesus' Apostle. I don't know if Judas was present, but within the intimacy of the Last Supper, Jesus speaks to the apostles for the very last time. The next day he will be crucified and killed on the cross. These, this is his grand finale. And being that perfect teacher... He reserves his most profound and moving words for his last evening with his apostles. Yes, it's the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the institution of the priesthood, but it's also a workshop for the first evangelization. He's going to send them into hostile country. They'll be like sheep amid wolves, as he says. The timing is very bad on a human level, on a natural level. Everything he's taught flies in the face of the customs, of the lifestyle, of the mores of the people in that pagan world. They will enter into a lustful, hedonistic world, teeming with skepticism, And violence. And the Lord will say that, for example, to live chastity, one's mind and heart has to be pure in a society where concubinage, lustful behavior, infanticide is the norm. And He says, under no uncertain terms, it's very simple that if you abide in me, which implies a constant union with him. And he explains it that this fruitfulness is traced back to him. We are the branches. We participate in the fruitfulness of that vine. And basically, he is saying with this imagery that there's three ports of entry into that heart of Jesus. He talks about the vine, and what does the vine mean? The vine is the Holy Eucharist. It's a Eucharistic symbol. Grapes come off of vines, and wine comes, is made out of grapes, and wine becomes the Eucharist. The pruning is the cross. He prunes so they bear more fruit. Another port of entry. And the third port of em- entry are his actual words. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. So it is a tour de force of instruction on the interior life. St. Jose Maria teaches that when it comes to apostate or evangelization, prayer must be very much in the first place. And there's a famous anecdote won't make the headlines, I don't think, but centers of Opus Dei, especially big centers, residences, conference centers like Shelbourne, the domestic work is taking care of a sector of the women's branch of Opus Dei. And they're calling their vocations to create a home environment, an imitation of the Holy Family and the imitation of Mary. And they serve the people They're taken care of by praying for them and offering their work for them. And they take care of them by providing the ambiance of a home. So the material arrangement uh, affirms their dignity, is a, a, a powerful reminder that they're daughters and sons of God. Anyway, they were building this big residence in Madrid in the 40s and and these women were trying to take care of all the domestic work there. The work, the construction was behind schedule. We've heard that before. Uh, things were in disarray. The workers were tracking in dirt. Uh, the women couldn't get the meals prepared on time. And they finally sat down Jose Maria Escriva and kind of read him the riot act that they're working under conditions that do not foster professionalism, they can't do their work, they're behind schedule, uh, things are chaotic, and they, they're totally frustrated. And so I, I guess he's just probably saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you've heard that before from Hubby. Uh, then they pressed a hot button. I'm sure you're not familiar with that. And uh, they said, and we don't even have time to pray. <laughs> and, you know, you see the movies, you know, he's kind of, uh, kind of tough and austere, going through a civil war and religious persecution, I'll toughen anybody up. And he burst into tears and wept and had to leave the room to compose himself. And then he returned and said, you know, it won't work if you stop praying. It got him so upset, kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. just burst into tears. Didn't even, According to the account, he didn't even get choked up. He just burst into tears and had to leave. And he says, he explains himself a little bit in the way, following the words of another writer, I'll tell you that your apostolic life was worth only as much as your prayer. Why do we need to be so united with our Lord? Let me just read what the apostles knew and heard. These are words of St. Paul in his, the end of the first chapter to the Romans. I'm not going to read the last two paragraphs. I'm just going to read the last paragraph because the second to last, last paragraph is a little bit too graphic. I mean, it's written by the Holy Spirit, but you could read it on your own. It's about all the perversities that were occurring in the empire and what they had to face. And you would think, well, it's a letter to, written to the Milwaukeeans or the, a letter wi- written to the Chicagoans or the Iowans. I hope I didn't uh, skip any cities. Or, or, the, or the Minnesotans. It describes all the violations of the moral law, all the perversities going on. So I'm just going to read the last paragraph, which is not the most cheerful uh, set of verses in the New Testament, but here it is. Uh, This is what they were facing, and this is sort of what we're facing. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them but approve those who practice them. Hmm. I know this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I wouldn't be surprised if Paul was a little bit in a bad mood when he (laughs) wrote the end of chapter 1. He's describing the environment of the empire. It's humanly impossible We, because the Miraculous catch really happened, but it's also an allegory. And with Peter, we want to tell our Lord, Lord, there's nothing in the lake. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. We know by experience the fish aren't biting. Lord, the the culture is marked by indifference, ignorance, moral moral relativism. We're in a post-Christian culture. How do I evangelize? I feel like I'm from another planet. I feel like an odd duck. The Holy Father talks about periphery, and it's very common that the periphery is within one's home. What do I do? On one hand, I need to be detached because I It is humanly impossible what we are trying to do or our Lord wants us to do, get this message everywhere. What I need to be attached to is not the results, but the interior life and my deeds of charity. That's what I need to focus on. And notice that our Lord doesn't just say, okay, boys, abide in me. I'm leaving, I want you to abide in me. No, he doesn't say that. I want you to bear fruit. Our Lord never talks about just abiding in him. I want you to bear fruit. I've called you, and then in the same context, chapter 15 of John's Gospel, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Again, that's the second pronoun. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you this i command you to love one another yeah we got the message <laughs> i would say well, lot, all these modern saints take your pick mother teresa sister faustina saint john paul saint jose maria padre pio saint edith stein great evangelizers And they share that common denominator of being united to the Holy Eucharist, which is the vine, the Mass, which is the vine, and mental prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you want to use the phrase "lexio Divina, go right ahead, or meditation, or quiet time. These are, St. John Paul said that the two pillars of evangelization and this was in the twilight, very much in the twilight of his papacy, is the Eucharist and the Rosary. I recall when uh, I was in Rome, some of the young people have only—well, now it's different—but uh, for a while they only they thought every pope was Polish. They only, all right, he was o- the pope for almost 30 years, and I was there when he got elected, and. Uh, there was a lot of consternation in St. Peter's Square because he wasn't Italian. He was sort of unknown. and Many of them didn't even know where Krakow was. And they got a hold of the senior cardinal, Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, who was 20 years older than he was. And they cornered him, and all these reporters and journalists are plying him with questions, you know, tell us about the new pope. And he said... And he spoke Italian. He said, I can't do this in two minutes. And they said, well, in a way, I can do it in two minutes, he said. I said, if I could summarize the new pope, he's a man who kneels in front of the Blessed Sacrament. He spends a lot of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And it it got old, but at first it kind of caught people's attention. They couldn't find him in his bedroom. They figured he wasn't in a tavern. You, he would have to get through the Swiss guards. And uh, it was 1.30 in the morning, and uh, they couldn't find him. Where is he? And they happened to open up the chapel door, and he was prostrate on the floor. And that's... He would do that often. He, would, he was a mystic. he spent entire nights that way. I remember going way, way on top of St. Peter's Dome. At least then, if, if my memory doesn't fail me, the last segment of the climb was kind of a, a rope ladder. And then you get on the tippy top, and I saw a white man pacing up and down in front of a statue of Mary. It wasn't that high up, but I can make, him, <coughs> I can make out that he had a rose from his hand and that he was saying the rosary. No, our Lord is not asking me to pull an all-nighter, but yes, our Lord has asking me to put the interior life first, because what is this fruitfulness he talks about? It's basically the first catechism, which is an incarnation of teaching. It's the capacity to give others in a consistent way, imperfect albeit, but a consistent way, an experience of that heart of Christ. Because when I abide in him, his heart melds with mine. His love courses through the arteries of my soul, and I begin to love as he is loved. And he says in this kind of environment, this pre-Christian environment, we are in a post-Christian environment. The doctrine in itself, the academic doctrine of the gospel, is unintelligible unless it's formatted by that heart of Christ. And it came true. The new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Again, tailored to an American audience because we're into accomplishments and results. By this, all men and women will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You will give it away that Christ is the way and the truth and the life if you approach that heart of Christ. And I, I, I bring up John Paul because, you know, he, I mean, crack up, three million kids came. And I remember his last World Youth Day in uh, Toronto. And I saw the kids who left to see the Pope. It was the last one. And it wasn't, at least externally, wasn't the way it used to be. He was racked with Parkinson's, and you know, it affected his muscles and his face, his vocal cords, his tongue. And the newspapers thought it was a very bad idea that his handlers would let him actually go through with this World Youth Day, because when he landed, he had to take a a break for a day or two on an island just to be with these kids for a half a day. And when he's giving his talk, you can't make out what he's saying. And he's drooling on the paper. And he's in a wheelchair. And he's hunched over. And he's kind of contorted. And he's not smiling. And I remember the kids coming back. You know how kids are. You know better than I. They're into quick audiovisual images. They're into actors and actresses and sports figures and not into, you know, hunched over old parkinson racked old men drooling on their paper. But they were really pumped and they were really enthused having gone to see him. And why? Because behind that veil of sickness and contorted expression They experienced that heart of our Lord. What's the secret? Well, here's the anecdote I was going to share with you. He was always a little bit behind schedule, or a lot behind schedule, on these trips. And one of the reasons he was behind schedule was because he would call an audible. Audible is, you know, the quarterback calls an audible, Okay. He changes the play right there on the line. Well, he calls an audible, and he usually would spend extra time in prayer, but that was not on the schedule, and that would throw the schedule off. So in this particular trip, he was going to go to a seminary and address seminarians. And so they anticipated that he'd want to linger and pray in a chapel, so they locked all the doors. And, you know, and there was a hallway going to the auditorium, and there, there was a chapel, but they locked it. <laughs> and so, uh, because they knew that he would try to go to a chapel. And so he was walking down the hallway, and right out of the blue, he turns the doorknob to the chapel door, and it's locked, and His Holiness says, Open the door, that's the chapel. And There was no way he could have known that. They were late again because he went in there in the chapel. What's the, how do I implement this vine and the branches stuff? Well, I've got to go to Mass more. Don't have to. But if, I'm going to, if he's going to abide in me, I need to loiter the chapel or the church. i got to loiter in front of the Blessed Sacrament the best I can according to my circumstances. I need to receive the Eucharist. And I need to connect with him through mental prayer, through his word, the bread and the word, as St. Jose Maria says. And looking at these great evangelizers, I need to be convinced I need to abide in him. That's what my family needs. That's what my friends need. And they will see our Lord. And they may say, well, you know... I've heard, I've I've witnessed conversation where one woman says to another woman how wonderful she is and she starts, you know, getting emotional and choked up because her friend is so good and she's praising her to the skies, you know, right in front of her. Um, The friend was embarrassed. You know, we may have pride and vanity, but, you know, it goes only so far. And basically this lady was praising Christ. When someone prays and one connects with our Lord in spite of our defects, in spite of our sins, they're gonna see Christ. And they may give us credit where credit is not due. But we know deep down inside they see Christ on some level. We uh, wind down our prayer, having recourse to the Blessed Mother. St. Luke depicts Mary in two occasions, contemplating the deeds and teachings of her son, reserving it all in her heart. Mary was the greatest contemplative. Mary, pray for me. Convert me to the need for a robust interior life, spiritual life, where I abide in your son. So I bear the fruit of the heart of your son, of the love of your son. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Holy Mary, our hope, handmaid of the Lord.